not a time to be asleep. It is a time to open up God's Word. Do you realize that this is God's revelation of Himself? You want to know it? Here it is. See, this, I told the first service this, this is my pot. No, I'm not going to go there. Uh, am I on now? Oh, I've been on. This is my Bible. This is a red Bible. Hold up yours. Is yours red? I hope it's been red this week. If it's not been red this week, you have missed an opportunity to commune with the Holy God. But I got good news. It's a new week. It's a new week. We can confess our sin before God and we can know that He will forgive us. But he wants repentance, doesn't he? Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For those of you that are visiting with us, we have spent the last two and a half years in intervals going through the Gospel of John, and we have made it to the end, nearly the end of chapter 20. And my sermon this morning is Shalom. It's an extension of last week. Shalom meaning peace. You want some peace in your life? And I want you to realize that peace comes through a relationship, not through your circumstances. And what good news that is for us. So if you'd stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. We're going to start reading in John 20, verse 24. Jesus has just appeared to the disciples, and that's where we catch the narrative. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which means twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach out here your finger and see my hands. Reach out here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and he said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. May God honor the reading of his word. Would you bow with me? Father, we, we lift this account to you. It's your word. You are the one that has given it to us. You have promised that it will not return void. Father, we ask that your spirit would work in this church this morning to soften hearts, open minds, do your work and let us be involved in it. In 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a day and age that peace is so sought after. But we also live in a day and age where unbelief in God and more specifically in His Son, Jesus Christ, is at a height that maybe it's never seen before. The knowledge of God cannot be denied. That's my premise this morning. The knowledge of God cannot be denied. Romans 1 tells us that God has placed it within each and every one of us. And you and I must deal with it. The knowledge of God. We cannot deny it. We can only distort it. We can only reduce God. And I would say that is what has happened in the New Testament church today. We have come up with five little ditties about God. We have come up with, ask Jesus into your heart and do the best you can. We have put God in a proverbial little box. Whenever we need Him, we open it up. Ask Him to come out. Give us three wishes. But we don't understand God at all. When we reduce God in our own minds, something very dramatic happens. And I want to warn you of this. When God is marginalized, the fear of people becomes elevated. And it becomes the controlling factor of our lives. You've learned in your quiet time this week about a fool. A fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. What's the thriving dynamic in your life? What rules you? The fear of men or the fear of God? You see, the difficulty in it is you probably can't even answer that question until you've spent some time in God's Word. We've talked about the greatest fear that a woman has, and I want to admit again up front, I've never been a woman. And the greatest fear of a man, here they are. What is the greatest fear of a woman? Let's read that together. What is the greatest fear of men? Do you realize that when Jesus died and was buried and they came to the tomb and his body was gone, that the women felt abandoned? The men feel like failures. And that's where we find the account. Jesus appears to them. Oh, what a great time that was. Jesus, look here. I have power over death. What do you have to be afraid of? He says, now, now that you're not afraid of death any longer, I want you to go out and I want you to be about the same things I'm about. I want you to go out and make disciples. He's just said this. I want you to know that you have power from the Holy Spirit in you and that you have the power to live a holy life. Paul describes it in this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 9-11. Oh, what a good verse. 
we ha- also have as our what? Ambition, whether home or absent, to be what? Is that your ambition? Is that what gets you up in the morning? Pleasing to the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, what do we do? I remind you that the Southern Baptist Convention says for every person that is saved in the Southern Baptist realm, it takes 79 people sitting on their tails. People that say, I'm a Christian. What's the problem? The Bible says that if I fear the Lord, I'm going to do what? Say it out loud. Persuade men. So therefore, we can take from that that if I do not persuade men, I don't. What do most people say why they don't share Christ? Is because I'm afraid. Who am I afraid of? God? No, I'm afraid of other men. We dial into Thomas. Some say that Thomas speaks for the whole world here. What's he called normally? Doubting Thomas. I'm going to refute that today. We should not call him Doubting Thomas. We should be call him Staunchly Unbelieving Thomas. He didn't want to believe. Some say that he speaks for the world when he says, Give me proof and I'll believe. Oh, we hear that all the time. If you'll just lay it out for me, give me some concrete proof, I'll believe. But that's not really the world's slogan. The world's slogan really is, show me the facts and I'll invent my own reality. The difficulties of belief may be great for you. But I would tell you the absurdities of unbelief are far greater. So this morning we're going to deal with, you want peace? It comes through belief. You want to be racked with fear your whole life? Start living your life for yourself. Are you ready? You wake? You're ready to look at what God's word says? Because we're going to look at some hard things this morning. Shake your head if you're ready. You got your word. Don't take my word for it. Here we go. Number one, we have three points because, I don't know, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I don't know. We got three. Number one, seclusion heightens phobias. Phobia is just another word for fear. Thomas, when the Lord appeared to his disciples, he's absent. Do you find that interesting? That if he'd have been there, he'd have seen the proof that he so desperately wanted. But Thomas is, you know, he's a glass half empty kind of guy. You know, kind of melancholy, easily depressed. If he'd be here today, he would be on medication. He would be bipolar. He would be the one that has a struggle. In the morning, I just have trouble. I feel like I have to keep winding myself up during the day to keep myself going there is a place for medication trust me but when you look at the world around us and you see the unbelief it's no doubt that it leads to the lack of peace in people's lives thomas 
loved the Lord, but he always seemed to expect tragedy. Let's review a little bit. Remember back when the Lord Jesus Christ raised Lazarus from the dead? Shake your head if you remember that. Okay, they remembered. Do y'all remember that? Okay, good. This is this is yes, good. Now he raised up Lazarus from the dead, and then he looks at his disciples and he says. This is in John chapter 11. He says, let's go up to Jerusalem right now. Now, Shannon, they knew what they wanted to do to Jesus in Jerusalem. They wanted to kill him. So Thomas, being the fatalistic person that he is, said, Jesus wants to go up to Jerusalem, does he? Well, let's all go and die together. That's exactly what he says in verse 16 of chapter 11. Oh, little Mr. Sunshine. He's a Baptist. Of course he is. You know, the person you can always count on to give you some cold water to quench your happiness. John 14, we quote this often, don't we? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the... No man comes to the... But right before that, Jesus has told them, look here, fellas. I'm going to be going away from you for a while. And where I'm going, you can't come. Well, Thomas pipes up in verse 5 and says, Wait a minute. We don't know where you're going. Now, how can we know the way? Jesus has only been telling him that for three and a half years. But, oh, Mr. Sunshine's there. He went on. Doesn't say anything about him at the crucifixion. Doesn't say anything about him at the tomb. Doesn't say anything about him at the resurrection meeting. Except for the fact that he went and secluded himself. And I want to warn you about something and listen to me very carefully. Be careful if your attitude is when you're having doubts, to go and sequester yourself all by your lonesome. It's a dangerous, dangerous place. It exaggerates all your ways. All your fears get exact. Have you ever played that little game with yourself? I call it the what-if game. When you're all by yourself, and we call it our happy place, but most of the time it's not our happy place. It's a fear place where suddenly the shadow of death is over us and we don't know if we can make it through it any longer. So what am I going to do? I'm going to sit at the house. I want to, James 4 verse 8 says this. What's it say? Read it out loud, the first sentence. It doesn't say if you want to get close to God, go all by yourself alone and just dwell on your doubts. It's interesting to me that when people are doubting and unbelieving, they don't pick this up. If I want to pass my driving test, guess what I do? I go to the DMV, I get the driving manual, and guess what I do with it? I read it first, and then I reread it. I take a highlighter, and I mark things off. Then I start testing myself in my own life to see if I know it. But the devil's always there, isn't he? Oh, put that away. I want to 
bring you back. Remember last week we did sides? The church was split last week. This was the prophets of Baal. This was the prophets of Yahweh. Or it may have been the other way around. Well, okay, thank you. Okay. Y'all are the prophets of Baal. No. <laughs> Nobody wants to be a Baal prophet. I don't blame you. Now, let's continue the story. If we go back to 1 Kings 19. If you had been a prophet of God like Elijah, don't you think you've just called fire down from heaven? 62-word prayer. Boom, it happens. Killed 300 prophets. You think you'd be riding high? Oh, you should have been in church tonight. It always seems to be that after the greatest victory, the greatest defeat comes right following. It seems like we let our guard down when God has just worked. Suddenly we think we had something to do with it. If you read in 1 Kings 19, let me read a little bit. Jezebel, the queen, sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as one of the prophets of Baal by tomorrow at this time. And so Elijah, being a man of God, said, First of all, there are no gods. There's only God, and he's in control, so I don't have to worry about this little woman, do I? Is that what he said? No. Elijah runs off and starts hiding in a cave, isolating himself from the world. God comes to him, and he says this in verse 9. What are you doing, Elijah? Again, he comes to him in another verse. After talking to him, he says, what are you doing? And Elijah lays it out. You know, everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. I guess I'll go eat worms. He says, God, I'm the only one that loves you. Kill me. I'd like to make fun of Elijah. But I've prayed that same prayer. I've come home from deacon's meetings. At Hales Jeff. God, just kill me. Just kill me. Now this has more to do with me and my walk with the Lord than it does about the deacons of Hales Chapel. Because I'm sure they've gone home <laughs> from deacons. Good night. Kill me! You know what God comes back and says? Elijah, I got 7,000 people in Jerusalem that have never bowed their knee. Why in the same hill are you in a cave by yourself? Why don't you get in there with those people? It's interesting to me that when we go through the greatest trials of our life, we want to seclude ourselves from the church. You know, sometimes you need Christian fellowship. Sometimes when you're talking crazy, you need somebody to come beside you and say, that is just the craziest thing I have ever heard. I'm going to need a verse for that, Angie. And then you start thinking, well, you know, maybe they're right. But at home, it sounded really good. The worst thing we can do is seclude ourselves from Christian fellowship. We, in America, tend to be more focused on the individual rather than the corporate. This board up here, this tends to be, you can't see it maybe because of this, this board up here tends to be the reason sometimes where I say, God, kill me! Why? 
I don't understand it. I don't see the numbers are good this week, but I don't understand how a third of our church can lay out a Sunday school every other week. I don't understand it. Unless the fact that you just wake up one day, or I do, and just decide, I'd, I'd rather stay at home today. Where's my banky? I need to stay home. Honey, you can't go either because I need you to fix me some breakfast. It always amazes me. One of the kids gets sniffles and the whole family has to stay home. Why? Because you want to stay home. We do what we want to do. Okay, so let's stop playing the game. Why do we seclude ourselves? I don't want to go to church and I don't want to have somebody say, you're being stupid. I'd rather stay here by myself. Alexander McLaren said it like this. You ready? Oh, this is funny. Your idiosyncrasies will swell to a monstrosity without the temper of fellowship. <laughs> we need each other desperately. If you're here and you say, well, I've never given my life to Christ and I hate church. What I'm saying is if you honestly are on a search to know if God is real or not, don't stay at the house and just depend on your own thoughts. Your quiet time this week said that a fool is the one that sits at the house and only listens to his own understanding. You see, if you really want to know God, you go on a search for Him. And He says, if you search for me, if you draw near to me, I'll reveal myself to you. But as long as you've already made up your mind, forget about it. So, next time you're laying at bed and you want to stay there, how about hear the voice of God saying, what are you doing? Joel needs you this morning. I've often said, how to be if Brother Dan just stayed at the house? Well, you get paid to be. If I paid you, I couldn't get some of you to be faithful. What is it? You think it says something about you, or does it say more about the church? Let's move on. We got quiet. Seclusion heightens phobias, but second, skepticism heightens pride. What is skepticism? Skepticism is giving all the reasons why I won't believe. Thomas wasn't one to act like he believed when he really did not. Can't you appreciate that? I would love it if everyone that didn't believe would come out and say, Hey, I just don't believe that. But what we have is a whole group of people that say they're Christians. And then they go out and live their lives as if they don't believe one single word in Scripture. And therefore they give such an awful testimony by the lives they live that it hurts everybody else. You see, I'd rather if we, just, if we believed, we'd trust and obey regardless of our circumstances. That's if we believe. And if we don't believe, let's just come out and say... I don't believe. But Thomas takes it a step further. In his pride, he starts making demands on his belief. I'm not going to believe till I do and see this, this, and this. He was no doubter. He was an unbeliever. And he was determined to be obstinate, just like some of you. 
Some of you are openly obstinate. Some of you are undercover obstinate. But what it really comes down to is, I don't want to know God. I don't want to seek after God. So I just as soon pretend that He doesn't exist. And you pretending and I pretending that God doesn't exist doesn't change the fact that He exists. You have a right for evidence. You and I have a right for evidence of God. And there's plenty of it. What we do not have the right for is to make up our minds before we examine the evidence. Thomas is here. He's full of pride. You say, well, what does it mean to be filled with pride? You see, the more that I focus on my doubt and my unbelief, it's, I've read that it's been like this. A pride-filled man is a self-made man who worships his creator. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, put it like this. You really think that you're better than everybody else. You really think you're smarter than everybody else that's ever existed on planet Earth. He wrote it like this. I'll read. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, and drunkenness are mere flea biters in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. This is the picture of unbelief. In my skepticism, I have become blown up in pride. And I'm looking at all you people, whether you've had evidence or not, and I'm looking at you all as ignorant, misinformed, stupid folks, weak-minded. And I'm coming to you saying, I am so much smarter than you. This is what Thomas is doing. The disciples came to him and said, we've seen the Lord. He says, bull! I don't believe it. What evidence did he have to base his unbelief on? None. Just that he didn't want to. It really comes down to the attitude that every one of us are born with. None worse, none better. We're all born rebelling against God. That's why your kids, the first word they learn is no, not yes. You don't have to teach them no. They learn that quick. Proverbs 16, 18 says this. Pride goes before what? And a haughty spirit before stumbling. What right do you have to look at God with clenched fists and say, prove it! What right? What right do you have to say, until God does this and this and this? The Pharisees came to Jesus with this, so it's not like you or I are the first ones to come with this, because they came and said, okay, now that you healed the blind man and fed 5,000 people with loaves and fishes, we want you to do some work of miracles so that we might believe. 
And he says, okay, you've got the word of God. You've got the prophets. And you've got the works that I've already done. You either take it or leave it. The more that we reject Christ, despite the witness or the evidence that there is of him, the more our pride grows. Do you understand that? How dangerous this is. The more you feed your skepticism, the more you get puffed up full of yourself. And the more you get pulled up full of yourself, the harder it is for you to recognize. Let me put it like this. There are people that want to believe, and then there's people that want to know. They're two different situations. You see, the person that wants to believe is looking for evidence. The person that wants to know is looking for reasons not to believe. Because they're making conditions just like Thomas. Until I do, till God does this and this. Do you ever find it interesting how patient God is with us? Tommy, let's say you're God. Would you look down at Thomas and go, let me give you some. How you like me now? Does it ever blow your mind how patient God is with you? When I look at my life and my own unbelief, I am blown away with how patient God is with me. So I'm going to tell you straight up, I, I understand it, where you're at if you're there. If you're on the journey of trying to know Him, Belief comes first. Knowing comes after. But let's get along. Let's get past the seclusion and the skepticism. Let's get to the surrender. Surrender heightens peace. You realize that if you're in the middle of a war, if one side gives up, there's no more war. You want peace? Give up. Or are you waiting for God to change His mind? Jesus confronts Thomas personally. He speaks directly to Thomas's demands. Have you ever, have, how many of y'all would raise your hand and say you have said things in anger before? Okay, I'm glad to see that. I'll put up both my hands. Do you know what's so embarrassing is when you get back control of yourself and someone repeats back your words of anger to you, they cut like a knife, don't they? burns i said what this is what you said no i uh-huh you did jesus looks at thomas he said thomas come here first of all he walks through the door without opening it wake up come here boy This picture shows him sticking his finger in the side of Jesus. This is a famous painting. It's, it's not accurate. He never did stick his finger in the side of Jesus. Just the mere sight of Jesus changed everything. You see, Thomas didn't need more evidence. That wasn't the problem. Nor is it the problem with you, nor is it the problem with I. The problem is our heart. The tendency of our mind and our heart to do what we want to do. 
and for God to toe the line. You see, if God towed the line for us, who would be God? As soon as he comes into personal contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he say? Verse 26. Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. Some of you refuse to believe in the Lord. Hey, there's lots of people that way. The Bible gives case upon case of this. You can look at this and say whatever you want, but what you can't say is that there wasn't an unbelieving person who five seconds after he comes confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ isn't a believing person. And the fact that it changed his whole life. Thomas moved to India. The rest of his life, he was martyred for Jesus Christ in India, sharing his personal account of the Savior with other people. You think he came into contact with the resurrected Lord? Yes, he did. And you're saying, "Uh uh-uh. I'm smarter than them. Them people that saw him. Well, that's the same thing Thomas said. You want peace? Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by what? Justified means being right with God positionally. It doesn't say, therefore, we're made justified by our sight. Right? It says by our faith. Meaning, Faith is believing in something that you cannot see. That's the whole point. It goes on and says, we have peace with God through our... Lord isn't His first name. That's the position He holds in your life. We can go to Romans 8, 6. It says, for the mind set on the flesh is what? But the mind set on the Spirit is... Here, I want you to understand this. The Bible, Jesus himself said, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your... Your heart is your priorities. Your soul is your will, the choices you make. Your heart is the doubts and the skepticism that you have. So it's saying here, if your mind is set on the flesh... I want to see it and touch it and hold it. You are headed toward death. But if your mind is set on spiritual, saying, I don't have to know, God, I'm laying it down for you, you will experience life and peace. You know the verses, Romans 10, 9, and 10, right? That's when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. That's when you pull it out and pull the trigger. What's it say? If you, did Thomas confess with his mouth that Jesus was Lord? Did he? He did. Okay. What, what's next? Did he do that? Okay. Here's the deal. Here's a guy, unbelieving as anyone, said, I ain't believing till I stick it in, comes confronted with the risen Lord, and now he's a believer. Did he believe that he rose from the dead? You better believe he did. Look at the next verse. Verse 10 says, For with the heart, what? Believes. Get this. Remember we said heart is when you give your skepticism to God. God, no longer am I going to hold on to all the questions I have. I'm just turning them over to you. Because there's never going to be an answer to them all. With the heart, One believes 
resulting in you being right with God. That's what the word righteousness means. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Does this mean that if I go outside, Tom, and say, Jesus, Lord, Jesus, Lord, Jesus, Lord, there's some magic word in that Lord. No. This means the position that he holds in my life. There's two tendencies that are gradually at work in every one of our lives. I want you to understand what they are. Are you ready? If you've been asleep thus far, <laughs> I want you to wake up for this part because this, this is at work in every one of our lives. You can either cultivate your skepticism until you descend in the, the class of people that believe nothing about and believe you me, as you go further down this path, it gets more real and more real and more real because you're believing on faith that God is not real. And you will see things through those eyeglasses. But there's also the other side. You can cultivate belief in evidence. But here's the thing with evidence. You've got to look at it. You've got to examine it. Put it under the microscope. But don't tell me that you, you don't believe that there's a God and you're not willing to search it out. Well, you just don't want to know God. You've got your own agenda. If you cultivate belief in the evidence, you will rise in knowing God intimately. I wish that I could trade spaces with you for just a moment where you could understand in a real way what it's like to have a relationship with a holy God. Once you've got a taste of it, there's nothing compared to it. Jesus ends with saying this. Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. Jesus was like, what was the big hoopla about? As soon as you look at me, you're going to believe? Do you realize that you will do the same thing? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. However, at that point... You will not have the benefit that Thomas had. Jesus says so much. Blessed are they who did what? Did not see and yet believed. There's only two Beatitudes given in the Gospel of John. One, Jesus has finished washing the disciples feet in John 13 and verse 17 he says blessed are you if you know what I've taught you and you do it meaning put yourself last and serve others and then here he says blessed are you if you don't see it and yet you believe read Hebrews 11 I want to touch on this as we close Ephesians 2 14 says this for he himself jesus christ is what i want you to realize this and i don't think we emphasize this enough in the new testament church today is that 
being a Christian is not about believing in a principle or an idea. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. Let me explain further. Let me expound on this. You may believe in the truth of the gospel. You may believe that Jesus lived, was buried, and rose from the dead. You may believe that. But yet never taste faith of true salvation. You see, even the devil himself believes that Jesus died on a cross, was buried, and rose from the dead. Does that mean he's a Christian too? No. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. You see, saying Lord denotes a relationship. The act of believing, I want to read this because I've got to get it right. The act of believing is not an acceptance of a given fact, whether it's resurrection or any other truth. All of this is mere evidence that you must look through and sift through. Now there's realities in it. But it is surrender of your whole nature, your heart, your soul, and your mind. Your priorities, your choices, your doubt. Surrendering it to Him and resting wholly in Him and not yourself. I wonder if you know Him. Do you know Him at all? Because if you know Him at all, your life's not going to be like this. The storm comes on those who have their foundation on the sand. And for those who have their foundation on the rock, this life is going to hit all of us. How do you know if you have your foundation on the rock? It's when you don't fall flat because you're not dependent on yourself. I want to finish with this. I read it last week and I'll read it again. It may be the best prayer of salvation that I've ever heard and David Livingston is writing it as a song for missions work, not for salvation. But it describes salvation in a real way. I'm going to read it again. He says, Lord, send me anywhere. Only go with me. Lay any burden on me. Only sustain me. Sever any tie. Save the tie that binds me to thy heart. Lord Jesus, my King, I consecrate my life, Lord, to thee. That's a Christian. Are you just following the Lord to make sure you have good kids? Are you following the Lord just so you can be economically, financially safe? Are you following the Lord so you'll have a good marriage? Are you following the Lord so that you'll be fulfilled? You see, all of these things are merely using God for your own will. He doesn't want that. He wants you to surrender your will. He wants you to surrender your priorities. He even wants you to surrender your skepticism and doubt to Him. And He says, when you do that, I will rush in. And I will reveal myself to you 
and you will never be the same. I wish I could describe it, but it's indescribable. Would you bow with me? Father God, we bring this invitation before you realizing that no words that we can say can prick men's hearts only you so father we will not try to foster fake emotions we will trust in you but we will ask you to work and we will pray that people will have the courage to respond openly to the truth of your word May you work through this invitation in Jesus' name. Would you stand with your heads bowed, eyes closed? The altar is open. Brother Keith is going to come and he's going to sing. But I don't want you to pay attention to him. I want you to examine your own life. Do you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you say no, won't you surrender to him today? Brother Keith. Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let him come in? There's nothing in.